God's word is I'm going to read the whole chapter, Revelation 10. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Heavenly Fathers, we come to receive from your word this morning. Grant faithfulness to your messenger and grant diligence and attentiveness to your hearers. We pray that your word of truth would renew our minds and that our minds that are renewed would also then work and transform our hearts and transform our wills so that we are changed and live out of what we understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently the Discovery Channel had uh, released a show called Inventions That Shook the World. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And in each episode, it's covering a different decade of history, recent history. And as it journeys through the decades, it covers all the most significant inventions and the people behind those inventions and the story of how those inventions came to be. And so you have kind of a vast array of different things that it's covered. So one episode covers the airplane and the Wright brothers. Another covers DNA fingerprinting and how it changed the whole uh, criminal investigation industry. And then another, another covers something as simple as waterproof rain boots and how that changed military uh, battles. But an underlying theme that emerges in these episodes is how frequently, as these inventors were seeking to invent these things, how frequently they faced opposition and resistance from without, and even uncertainty and hesitancy from within. So they proposed their ideas, they tested their prototypes, they had all these ideas, and it was usually initially received with much doubt, much skepticism, and sometimes even antagonism, because people didn't want things to change. And yet, despite the resistance and the setbacks, and even their own struggles internally, they persevered, and now their perseverance is, as it were, the stuff of history. That's why they're in this show. And the reason I bring that up is because it serves as a fitting parallel to the recurring pattern that runs through the life and ministry of the prophets in the Bible. If you look at any of the prophets in Scripture, all of them, almost without exception, were called to proclaim God's message to people who are going to oppose and resist it. And with that opposition and resistance, they internally struggled with their own calling. 
So think of Moses, that prophet, you know, par excellence in the Old Testament. He brings God's word to Pharaoh. And even before he does that, there's opposition and resistance in his own heart. I, I can't do this. I, I don't, I'm not good with speaking. And then when he does go with his brother in tow, Pharaoh refuses to listen over and over and over again. And even his own people start to oppose and resist him. Why, why are you doing this? Things were easy for us here since you, before you came here. And then think of Elijah. Elijah had to confront his own people with God's word. He had no brother to help him come alongside him. And he's confronting the vast majority of the nation of Israel who has turned from the Lord to worship a foreign and false God. And there are times, there are Moses' ministry, Elijah's ministry, Jeremiah's ministry, Ezekiel's ministry, you name it, Isaiah's ministry, where they struggled not only externally with the opposition and resistance, but internally with their commitment to their calling because of all the opposition they faced. They were coming near to that point that perhaps you've gotten to at various stations or stages of life when you start to ask some of the following questions. Is this really worth all the trouble that I'm going through? I don't know how much more of this I can take. Is it time to throw in the white flag? Well, as the drama of Revelation has been unfolding, as we've kind of seen it through the eyes of John, we've been getting the inside scoop of God's plan for that final chapter of redemptive history and how it's going to unfold and what it's going to look like. And I think you'd agree with me in saying it has not been the prettiest and most uplifting of pictures so far. You know, I think there's a good reason that Hallmark Channel has not tried to buy the rights to Revelation and make a movie out of it. It doesn't really fit their genre. Well, we just looked at six trumpet blasts. Six trumpet blasts of warning and woe in Revelation 8 and 9 on the world and how the general characteristic response to these trumpet blasts is going to be. Look at Revelation chapter 9 and those last two verses, verses 20 and 21. These trumpet blasts of warning and woe of judgment and uh, trying to alert the people. And here's how humanity generally characteristically responds. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. So the trumpet blasts that John is proclaiming and talking about, that the church is supposed to warn the world about, seems to fall only on deaf ears. The world just keeps resisting, keeps rejecting God, keeps going like sheep that are astray, not returning to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. And so the question comes, in the face of such resistance, such rejection from the world that we're called to witness to, how can we sustain confidence in God's word and God's plan? Because it, it seems like the resistance and rejection of the world can, can work like water on rocks, where it just it keeps eroding slowly and slowly and slowly in your confidence. And so how do we sustain it in the midst of that? Well, Revelation 10 and 11 is written to address such a question. Because Revelation 10 and 11, it's, it's this interlude. It's this brief pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet. So, right, we, we just heard the sixth trumpet blast. We haven't heard the seventh. And now there's this pause. The, the, the drama kind of stops and slows down for a second. And this interlude meant, is meant to focus on the church and encourage them in their prophetic role as the proclaimers of God's word in the midst of a world that is resistant and hostile to it. And so with this interlude, instead of looking at the world and the judgments that are happening to it, the perspective now zooms in on the church and 
what the church's task is in relation to the word of God that has been entrusted to it and how it's to proclaim it. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig into Revelation 10. We're not going to be able to cover every detail of it, but we're going to try to cover as best as we can some of the lessons that are in it for us. So the first lesson in Revelation 10 for us is this. In the face of resistance and rejection, we need to remember the divine authority of our message. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me of Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel, and notice how he's described. He's coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And then notice what he has. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and then notice his posture. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now there's a lot to unpack there. And before we get into kind of the weeds of all the details and the debates over the identity of this mighty angel, it's important to start with the essence of this imagery and what it's communicating to us. Let's start with the, the forest and then we'll, we'll look at the trees. All of this imagery is intended to communicate to us through John that the message that has been entrusted to him and then entrusted to the church is no ordinary message because it comes from the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why his feet are set on the sea and the land, all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the one from whom this message comes and this is the authority that that message carries. Now the controversy comes when you seek to answer the question, who is this mighty angel that carries this mighty message. And many people look at these descriptions and they notice how closely they parallel how Jesus is described in Revelation. So notice in uh, verse 1 of chapter 10, it says his face was like the sun. Well, if you look at Revelation 1.16, when Jesus was described before John, it says his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Or you think of Matthew 17 and the whole uh, situation of the transfiguration. It says his face shined like the sun in full strength. Seems like there's a parallel. Look at verse three of chapter 10. The voice of this mighty angel was like a lion roaring. Well, how is Jesus described to us in Revelation five? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I, I can see why many people take the view that this mighty angel is identical to Christ. It's a subtle veiled reference to Christ. But I think we're not meant to make the connection that way. We're not meant to see this mighty angel as if as he were Christ. What we're meant to see is that this mighty angel is distinct from Jesus, yet very closely associated with him. Now, here's why I think that. Nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus ever identified as an angel. In fact, he's always distinguished from angels. So Hebrews 1 talks about how Jesus is not an angel. He, in fact, he is over all the angels. He has authority over all of them. So he's distinguished from them. But why then all these divine-like and Christ-reminiscent descriptions? Here's why. We're meant to see this mighty angel as a heavenly ambassador, as a delegate of the King of Kings, whose message comes with all the authority of the King of Kings, whom he represents. So this messenger is coming from being in the presence of the King. So he represents and reflects the King, and he's carrying a message that the King himself has written. And so John sees that reflected in the identity of this mighty angel. A biblical example is this. When Moses had been atop the mountain, hearing the revelation from God as Israel was waiting down below, not behaving themselves, mind you, 
He comes down that mountain, and what did his face look like as the people saw him? It was glowing with the very reflection of the glory of the one whose presence he had been in. There was, there was an intention in the fact that the message that Moses was carrying to the people was reflected in Moses' own face. Or you can think of it in our modern day. When the king sends out an emissary or an ambassador, he sends them out in such a way that they would look like and talk like and act like he would want them to because it's a reflection of the king. That's what this mighty angel is doing. And the gesture in verse two, if you look at that, is meant to further reinforce the divine authority of the message that this angel is carrying to John. Notice what he does. He plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now to plant your foot on something is to claim ownership or authority or possession or victory over something. So in the days of European exploration, an exploring ship would find unclaimed land And what would they do? They would plant their flag in that ground so that any other ship that would come would see the flag of that country and they'd recognize, oh, this has been claimed by. Another nation has set their foot here and claimed it. And that's what this angel is doing. He's demonstrating what Abraham Kuyper famously said in one of his quotes. He said, there is not one square inch in the universe over which the risen Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. That's what this angel is demonstrating. And how encouraging for the church who feels like they're gaining no ground, who is struggling against a nation that is all about expansion, Rome at this time. And yet here this angel is saying, Rome may think they own this, but understand that there is not one square inch over this universe, which the risen Christ does not say mine. And this message that John proclaims to the church and that we as a church are to proclaim to the world comes then with all the authority of the one who possesses all authority in all places. And so our commitment to and confidence in God's word must not be circumstantial. Circumstantially, for John and the church at that time, and sometimes for us, things don't look great always. And yet, that cannot be the basis of our commitment and confidence in God's word. We are not fair weather fans, right? You know, you've, you've heard of fair weather. Recently, you know, within the last decade, all of these fans go to the New England Patriots or, or some other team, or the Yankees or whatever, all these evil empires as they were. Why? Because they win. Uh, we can get into a debate about that later, but our basis is not circumstantial. You know, things are looking good for Christianity, so I'm, I'm going to stick with this team. Or you know, things are not, are not looking very great, so I'm going to look for a, a, a winning team to cheer for. Nor is our commitment to and confidence in God's word based on pragmatism. Pragmatism is that commitment to something only as long as it works, right? As long as Christianity works and gets the results that I'm looking for, I'm in. I'm committed to it. But if it doesn't seem to be working, I'm going to find something else that does. Our commitment to and confidence in God's word is based on the fact that behind its historical reliability, all of its prophetic accuracy, the the harmony of all of its diverse parts, from diverse periods in history, from diverse authors, and its deep diagnosis of the human condition is the divine authority of its author shining through all of that. And that's where our commitment is based off of. The second lesson from Revelation 10 is this. In the face of resistance and rejection, we need to remember the divine wisdom of our message. Look at verses three and four with me. So this mighty angel called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, 
the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Very interesting. We've looked at the seven seals and their openings and what contents is revealed in that. We've heard six of the seven trumpet blasts and all the contents that are revealed as the trumpets are sounded. And now it sounds like we're about to hear another set of sevens as the seven thunders boom and what God's purposes are gonna be revealed through those things. And yet just as John is about to put pen to parchment, he stopped and he said, don't write it down, seal it up. In fact, this is gonna go in heaven's classified section and top secret section and it's not for public consumption. And pair that with the, pair that with the fact that the scroll that John has handed, look at the, how the scroll is described in verse two. It's described as a little scroll. Over and over, it's described as a little scroll. Now, we've heard about a scroll early in Revelation 5. And that scroll was large, sealed with seven seals. There was writing on the front and the back. And the only one worthy to take it and open it and execute its decrees was the lamb who was slain. And I think we're meant to see a relationship between that scroll in Revelation 5 and this little scroll here in Revelation 10. It's related to that scroll, but it's not identical to it. This little scroll seems to be, as it were, an abridged version of that greater, bigger scroll that we saw in chapter five. Now, if you ever read an abridged version of something, you know it's, it's a shortened version of the larger thing. So uh, think of the book, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. You've maybe seen the movie, maybe you've read the book. The original book is 1,276 pages. Now that is a large book. I, I hear they got paid by the page back then. Well. My favorite version of the book, the great illustrated classic version, is 240 pages with pictures on every other page, okay? And it's an abridgment that's aimed at introducing young or lazy readers to the classic version. Now, this little scroll, which I take as, it's a symbol, an image of the contents of the book of Revelation that we're we're reading, contains what we need to know about God's unfolding plan for that final chapter of redemptive history but it does not contain everything there is to know. It's sufficient. God has put in there what we need to know, but it is not exhaustive. There are other things about God's plan and his purposes that he has not placed in this book because they're not for us to know. In his wisdom, he's determined what we need to know and not exhaustively given us everything that we could know. Think of it like what John said about his gospel account of the life of Christ. As he finishes his gospel, as he wraps it up, his summary of it is, I could, I could write more. If I wrote everything that Jesus did and said, it seems to me that not all the books in the world could contain what could be said about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what he taught. That's a picture of what we're getting here with the book of Revelation. What John has revealed to us here is the divinely endorsed, abridged version of all of God's plans and purposes for that final unfolding chapter of redemptive history. So in other words, God in his wisdom has determined what we need to hear, what we need to understand, and what we need to live in light of regarding the end and what we don't. And St. Augustine, apparently this is attributed to St. Augustine. Someone asked him this question. They said, you know, what was God doing before he created the universe? This is this question. You ever want to peer into the, the secrets of history and pry into them? And this was Augustine's uh, reply. He said, God was creating hell for those who ask stupid questions. Now, <laughs> I don't know if he exactly said that, but I, I, there's, there's, a, there's a point to it, a principle to it. When God 
stop speaking, so should we. There, there are certain things that God has not said. And there's a principle from Deuteronomy 29, 29 about that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. What that means is that there are depths and intricacies and layers and complexities to God's plans and purposes that we will not even come close to comprehending. And Job saw a piece of this in his own story. And to a degree, don't you find that a little frustrating? I know I do. I, I want to know the whys and hows. I love knowing the whys and hows of how things work. And I don't like unsettled questions. Unsettled questions keep you up at night and they ruin your appetite. And it's, it's, a, it's frustrating. And yet, I think the frustration is to a degree part of the point. Now, intellectual curiosity is a good thing. Wanting to dig deeper below the surface and, and understand as best we can what God is up to and how to answer questions and wrestle with objections and struggles is a good thing. But sometimes I think the frustration is part of the point where we are once again in our frustration, humbled with an acknowledgement of our creaturely limitations, our finitude. And so we have a choice in this frustration. One, we can can be bitter and think, you know, uh, you know, because I can't answer the question, there must not be an answer. Or we can say with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways, how inscrutable are his judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. As, as Paul, the Apostle Paul, with the mind that God had given him, as he searched out the depths of God's unfolding plan of redemption, all he could do is stand back and say, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Now, we should be zealous for knowledge, but we also need to realize that there is a limitation to what we can know, and in our zeal for knowledge, we should be as zealous to live in light of what we already know. know, If we are more passionate about the square footage of heaven than we are about living as citizens of heaven in the here and now, we may want to re-examine things. Or, if we are more passionate about the timing of the return of Christ, than we are about living in light of the fact that he is returning here and now, then we may need to adjust our focus. There are things that God has left out, and there are things he's left in, and we need to wrestle with and apply what he has left in. Well, the third lesson from Revelation 10 is this. In the face of resistance and rejection, we need to remember the divine guarantee that backs our message. We need to remember the divine guarantee that backs our message. Look at verses five to seven with me. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So what's being described here is referred to as an oath ceremony. So an oath ceremony is when you call someone as a witness to your promise or your statement so that they could guarantee its fulfillment or truthfulness or hold you to account if you're not faithful to it or if you're not true to it. And now you've seen this in courtrooms. So before a witness is to take the stand, there is an oath ceremony that they perform either by raising their right hand or in some states, placing the right hand on the Bible, and they say, do you swear that the witness and testimony you're about to give 
is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. And then they would take that oath. Or if you remember the elementary school playground, oath ceremonies were quite a big deal in the elementary school playground. They're very sophisticated things. So you know recess is coming, and you know that we're playing kickball. It's Thursday, it's kickball. And so you tell your buddy, hey, if you're team captain, promise that you'll pick me. And if I'm team captain, I promise that I'll pick you. And this is where the oath ceremony part comes in. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Very gruesome, very serious stuff. And that was, that was the best way fourth graders knew how to back their word and make it binding. Well, here in Revelation 10, we, believe it or not, have something even better and more binding than that fourth grade elementary school playground oath ceremony. Notice the relationship between the angel's posture and the one he swears the oath by. So verse 5, the angel's posture and positioning intentionally incorporates every sphere of the created world. So he's got foot on the sea, foot on the land, and his hand raised to heaven, to the sky. And the reason the angel does that is to visually represent the fact that the one who is guaranteeing the fulfillment of this oath, who is guaranteeing every promise made in this book, is the one who has created, sustained, and sovereign over every single one of those spheres. It's, it's reminiscent of the promise that God makes to Abraham. When Abraham is struggling to understand the promise that God has made to him of the seed and the land and the blessing, he says, look at the stars. As these stars are, so numerous will be your offspring. God wasn't just pointing out that for a mathematical lesson saying there's going to be a lot of them. He was pointing out to say, you know these stars? I put them all there by the word of my power and I can give you offspring by the word of my power. So the one who is guaranteeing all the promises, all the plans contained in this little scroll is backed by the one who created trillions of galaxies, each containing trillions of stars, which he spoke and knows all by name. All the promises and plans contained in this little scroll is guaranteed by the one who made Adam and anteaters, who made Eve and electric eels, who made Mount Everest and every mole and every molehill, and he guarantees the fulfillment of this book. And the one who commands the waves and says, this far may you go and no further, the one who created every creature in the sea, including the ones that lie at the bottom of the Mariana Trench that no one has ever yet discovered, is the one who guarantees that he will fulfill all he has spoken by his servant, the prophets. So in other words, this angel is assuring the church, look at the sea, look at the land, look at the sky. The one who spoke that and sustains it wrote this and will sustain it until every single one of its promises is fulfilled. And here's why we need to remember the one who guarantees this message. Because Peter reminds us in his second letter, that there is going to be the constant barrage of mocking and questioning regarding the Lord's return. Peter says, many will say, just as they did in the days of Noah, where is this promise? Where is the promise of his coming that you keep talking about? Every day just keeps going on as it was from day to day. So how do you keep from allowing that to slowly erode your hope and your focus and your anticipation? Well, here's one way you do it. You call to mind the past faithfulness of God to bolster your confidence in his future faithfulness. His past faithfulness is the indication and the guarantee and the promise of his future faithfulness. Think about when we take the Lord's Supper, one of the things we're doing is we're looking backwards so that we can look forwards. 
We're taking these elements that point us back to the cross and all Christ has done, all God did in and through his son, which all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ, so that as we look forward to his return, we know that the one who did that is also going to do this. If he did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things and sustain and keep all of his promises? If we look back and know that he who raised his son from the dead and left the tomb empty, he's not going to leave us here as orphans. You call to mind God's past faithfulness to bolster your confidence in his future faithfulness. Think about it. When, when, when you give a resume, you, you give a resume as a way of showing to an employer, this is, my, this is my past record of employment. God's resume is written large in the Bible for us. Look at his resume. Look at his perfect, spotless, unblemished record of faithfulness to his word and to his people. His past faithfulness guarantees his future faithfulness. He swears it by his own character. Even though we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Well, final lesson from Revelation 10 is this. In the face of resistance and rejection, we need to remember both the sweetness and bitterness of our message. Look with me at at verses 8 to 11 of Revelation 10. And the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me, Again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel, told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, as odd as this scene sounds, it's actually not unique to the book of Revelation. In fact, there are many scenes, especially in the prophets of the Old Testament, where the prophet has to eat what he's supposed to say. Uh, Not in the metaphorical sense, but in in the prophetic sense. So in Ezekiel 3, as Ezekiel is being commissioned to go and proclaim his message to the people of Israel and why they're going to go into exile, he's told to take the scroll and eat it. And he eats it, and it's first sweet in his mouth, and then it's very bitter in his stomach. Or there's other places in the scripture, like in Jeremiah 15, he says, I took your words and I ate them and they were a joy to my heart. Or think of Psalm 19:10. His word is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So there's, there's all this eating and tasting imagery associated with God's word. The eating imagery is meant to draw a parallel between our need for food and our need for God's word. And our need as... In order to get all the nutrients, all the riches, all the protein, whatever it is, of food, you can't leave it on your plate. You have to take it into your body. You have to digest it. It's the same with the Word of God. The Word of God on a shelf in a house does no good to your soul in the midst of temptation and struggles and trials and troubles. You need to bring it in to your soul. So God created us with physical appetites and hunger so that when your stomach growls for food, you would have some idea of how hungry you should be for God's word and how badly you need it. God created food to be physically nourishing, to be replenishing, to be strengthening, so that we would have a greater capacity to understand what he means when he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from my mouth. God didn't create the physical capacity for hunger and food and replenishment and then say, you know what? That's a really good illustration that I could use with my word. No, he first created our need for his word, and then he created those physical capacities so that we have a better understanding 
of our need for his word. Well, in addition to that, the tasting imagery that John experiences, this sweetness and bitterness, draws a parallel to the type of content that is in God's word and the type of response that his word is going to get. This is not an illustration, but follow me here. If you've ever eaten through a whole pack of Jelly Belly jelly beans, then you know what I mean when I say that it is the most interesting candy-eating experience you'll ever have. Right? There's even games with it. If you ever, I don't know if you ever played. It's like it's like jelly bean roulette. Um, so there's all sorts of flavors. Some of them are absolutely delightful, and some of them are absolutely disgusting. And so what happens with your taste buds is you have this interchange of delightful and disgusting because one bite is a delicious caramel corn jelly bean, and then the next bite could be literally a jelly bean that's labeled stinky socks. Okay, and it tastes about as good. One bite is strawberry banana cream. The next bite is dead fish. And the point of the game with the Jelly Belly jelly beans is that some of those look exactly alike and you're not able to tell the difference. So you can have coconut and then you can have spoiled milk and they look the same. So I commend that game to you. But, sorry, that's beside the point. The analogy I mean in this, and I do mean this reverently, reading through the whole counsel of God's word is a bit like that. In that, There are truths in scripture that are so sweet to the soul that you could eat them over and over again. The truths of the gospel, adoption in Christ, imputed righteousness, justification by faith alone, full forgiveness of all of our sins. I could eat that all day. And then there are truths in scripture, like the reality of an eternal hell, of God's judgments on this world throughout history, of the description of God's wrath toward sin and rebellion, that seem to taste so bitter that you almost want to set them aside or pick them out. And that's what John is experiencing here. He's experiencing that in your role as a prophet, there are truths that you have to take into your soul. There are messages that you have to give that are sweet and yet also very bitter. That as you even give these messages of sweetness and bitterness, there are going to be responses that come to you that are going to be sweet to your soul and responses that come to you that are going to be very bitter and hard to deal with. And so I think what what we're being shown here is an example of biblical realism. What I mean by biblical realism is, think of the debate between optimists and pessimists, right? I I think it's a wrong debate because I'm a realist, right? The optimist says the glass is half full, pessimist says it's half empty, the realist says there's water in the cup, right? That's all they say. And in the scriptures, if we come with these expectations that everything is going to be grand and great and everything in life is going to be fine and fantastic, then there is the shock of when reality hits expectations and we have to adjust. So the Bible is often bringing us back to realism, a biblical realism. Or there's this pessimism which says everything's going to get worse, nothing's going to get better, I can never change, nobody can change, all these things. And yet that pessimism grinds away at the true hope, the realistic hope that the gospel gives of the power of God onto salvation. And so this bitterness and sweetness is meant to bring together these two realities of the hopeful realism that Christians should live with. And so when it comes to the scriptures and its content and the response, the sweetness of the gospel, in one sense, is all the sweeter because of the bitterness of judgment and how bitter it is. We have to remember that our our palate is not the test of truth. Our ability to digest something and understand it and like it is not the test of truth. The reason this is so important is because we live in the age of subjectivism. 
And subjectivism is the belief that my internal disposition and feelings about something is the determiner of reality. That my internal desires for something or feelings about something creates truth and reality. And that is exactly opposite. We're meant to conform to reality as it is, not have reality conform to us. We are meant to submit to the scripture as it is, not submit scripture to us. The truths in God's word are meant to be understood that they are bitter and they are sweet. They're not all meant to taste the same. There is a reason why we come against the stories of God's wrath and judgment and we find them bitter. They're, they're meant to taste that way. They're not meant to taste sweet. And I think it's helpful sometimes in understanding that. And so when we come to the gospel, we see this perfect conjunction between the bitterness and sweetness of the scriptures. That God did not spare his own son. That he gave him up for us to the judgment that we did. And yet in the bitterness of that, it is the sweetest thing in all the world. That the son would say, not my will, but yours be done. That he would willingly go as a sheep led to the slaughter and die in our place. And I would go so far as to say, until your view of sin and judgment and God's wrath is bitter to you, God's grace in Christ will not be sweet to you. Until you know the bitterness of sin, you will not know the sweetness of Christ. It's like when a jeweler brings out a diamond. When they show it to you, where do they usually show it to you? They show it to you on the backdrop of a black cloth so that you can see it shine and illuminate all that much more brightly. So this mix, sweetness and bitterness, is a representation of the message of God's word. And it also represents the response that God's word is going to get. Some hear the gospel, and maybe for the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time, who knows, and it becomes finally sweet to their soul. And there's, there's no greater joy in seeing someone receive and embrace and fall in love with the gospel. And yet, other times, people hear the gospel over and over again, and they still are either repulsed by it or just apathetic to it and don't care and don't want to follow Christ. And there is nothing almost more gut-wrenching to see that happen, especially when it's someone you care about and love. And Paul says it very clearly this way. We, as Christians, carry this message of the gospel, and we are the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others. That is the reality of the call of the church to carry this message. And regardless of the results, regardless of how palatable it may be to us, we are called to faithfully proclaim it to others, knowing that our confidence and our hope rests not in the results, but in the divine authority of our message, that it comes with all the authority of the one who has all authority, of the divine wisdom of our message, that God has said what we need to hear, And it's not exhaustive, yet he has left us with what we need to know. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your face and is excellent. What more can he say than to you, he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And this message has a divine guarantee that God will see it to fulfillment. And he stakes his own character on it. That is our hope and confidence as we deal with the bitterness and sweetness of this ministry and of this message. Let's pray.